the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse <clears throat> to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe uh, plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, not, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. You may be seated. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord and ask him to use the preaching of the word unto our hearts. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that your, your word was just read to us, that we can rely on it. It's revealed to us in a book that does not change. We thank you for the faithfulness that you have given us to, to walk in your ways that are clearly identified, to understand your grace that overwhelms our hearts. And Father, we pray that, that you will give us understanding of, of what is being preached now as, as a means of bringing about change in us. Let us not leave here unchanged, or at least not pondering change. Work in and through our hearts this coming week to make us more and more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, this morning's message is, is titled, Yahweh, a God of Precision. We're going to use some precise understandings. I'm not going to allow myself to use generalities uh, because I don't want there to be any misunderstanding in today's uh, uh, sermon because we're using some, some intricacies in God's Word. Um, let's get an understanding. When I say God is a God of precision, let's get a definition in our minds of what I mean or what is under, should be understood as for, uh, precision as it relates to our context today. So think of precision as a state of exactness, a sharply defined action. So a state of exactness or a sharply defined action. That's what we're, we're speaking of. It's not, it's not just a general uh, broad brush. There's a, there's a very precise, exact thing happening at different times to different people, and we're going to see that exactness carried out. But let's, let's for the sake of getting our minds thinking of, uh, in uh, the context of precision, let's look at three examples uh, which, in which pre uh, precision is, is necessary as it relates to our own personal well-being. And these will be kind of fun to get us working. We'll start with the less serious, and then we'll move, move to more serious. So the first one, precision is necessary in fingernail trimming, <laughs> at least as it relates to comfort. Have you ever done it incorrectly had the hangnail that reminded you with every article of clothing that you ever touched that day that, ah, I did it imprecisely. In that case, the precision would only bring about, the imprecision would only bring about a lack of comfort. But what if it was, say, 
eye surgery. Imprecision in eye surgery would bring about a lack of vision. And I'll be frank with you, I would love to ditch these glasses. I don't have the guts yet to, to, to stand in possibility of someone being imprecise where I would lose vision, at least in one eye. So you could maybe <laughs> said all the people in here that are wearing glasses or contacts. <laughs> so there you can see that imprecision as it relates to eye surgery can have very serious effects. A little more playful, but yet more serious. What about, and I think of anyone who's been in the military before, particularly paratroopers, what about the precision necessary for packing a chute? Imprecision on that? would result in potential, almost certain, loss of life. So you can see that the precision is necessary in our lives, and we're going to see today that God is a God of precision as it relates to his judgment and his grace. He is very precise in both. If you'll take a look at your bulletins, and you'll look on the back page where it has the outline. I want to make sure we walk away with this. We've had some heavy, challenging sermons in the past. And the impression on me and the Lord and trying to understand the Lord's sheep is, Nick, give him a break. How about making something a little encouraging and lighten up a little bit? So let's take a look at this as, we, as today's takeaway. Be encouraged that Yahweh, and I, I, we use at, uh, at the church the word Yahweh. Anytime in your Bible you have the four capitalized letters that, that uh, refer to Lord, L-O-R-D, all in caps. Um, we know that that is the personal name given by, that God identifies himself as, to Moses to identify himself as the self-existent, completely separate from his his creation, God, who is the God who steps out and makes covenant with his people for the purpose of reconciliation. So that, that name has a lot in it. So, and we want to grasp that. We don't kind of lose it in, you know, Lord, it kind of means just kind of master. No, 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 this has very specific meaning. So we hold on to and we use the, the, the Hebrew word of that as Yahweh. So be encouraged that Yahweh carries out precise judgment against evil while also bestowing precise grace upon his people. And we're going to see that borne out today in today's passage. Well, we're dealing with plague number five today. We're at the halfway point of the plagues that God is bringing about on the Egyptians, particularly Pharaoh, who proclaims himself to be uh, Ra incarnate, the the God Ra who has manifest himself in flesh and and is on the earth ruling and reigning. We've already talked about a couple of times how that is, is eerily close to what we understand Christ, but we're going to see that there's some sloppiness, there's some imprecision in their theology as we continue to see that there is imprecision and all of their false gods seem to have overlap in areas. We have a single God who perfectly rules over all. They have gods that are in each other's business all the time. And they even have fighting among the, their, their gods. We don't have that with our God because our God is the true God. He is the one God. So we're looking at plague number five where Yahweh kills the Egyptian livestock. Not all livestock, just the Egypt, Egyptian livestock. And we keep looking at that. Uh, what's happening here is on a, a dual level or, or two things are simultaneously happening. happening. 
first off, is a polemic, which is a, a, an attack by God on the system of false gods that Egypt has. Egypt is a superpower. They, they, he, Egypt has a pharaoh that refers to him as the, himself as the son of God on earth. Egypt is the one that takes credit for all of its might. And God is going to let Egypt know, by way of experience, who he is, and by demonstrating his power to bring affliction on Egypt in order to release his people, the Israelites, who are in captivity by Egypt. They're being oppressed by Egypt. When his people, the Israelites, see this this, uh, judgment upon the Egyptians, they will also learn and start to know their God that they don't know so well. So there's two things going on. So let's look at the polemic, the attack uh, on the many livestock-headed false gods. We've been able to to name off one or two gods that uh, each plague is is purposely uh, uh, dealing with. In this particular one, there are, there are so many male and female gods in the Egyptian cult uh, religion that it's really a statement. He's taking a large swath. This is, in fact, you're going to see this is, he's making a statement of, it's me against a number of, the, of these false gods. So let's read. I'm going to read, actually, this is right out of a uh, uh, John Currid's commentary. He states this. Bull cults, excuse me, are known to have flourished throughout the history of Egypt. Egyptians viewed the bull as a fertility figure. It seems like three of the last four all deal with fertility. Can't one of you get it done right? You've got to rely on so many. Uh, A fertility figure, the great inseminator imbued with the potency and vitality of life. Apis, that's another name for a, a, a false god, was the most important of the Egyptian sacred bulls. Other bull cults included Bukchis, sacred bull of Hermothis, and Menuhis. In addition, bulls were understood as an embodiment of the great Egyptian gods Ptah and Ra. Interesting. Ra doesn't just show himself as a manifest presence in the form of his son uh, and Pharaoh. Ra shows himself as a cow. Now, how, in, how? I mean, we have a god who shows himself only in his, the, uh, in his son taking on flesh. This god, or these gods, at least two of them, take on the, the form also of a cow. So we're, we're moving, I mean, the theology gets sloppy. You're moving from that which images God, the creation he made in mankind, exclusively mankind images God, to you see these gods being able to be in, uh, or their embodiment, or how they're represented here on earth, is through livestock, animals. So let's continue on. Numerous important female deities are pictured as livestock animals. Isis, queen of the gods, bears cow horns on her head. Hathor is given a bovine head for her task of protecting the king. The king would be Pharaoh. The biblical author is demonstrating that these gods are imposters. Yahweh is sovereign over all things. Isn't it interesting that the one who claims to be God incarnate on earth, Pharaoh, needs protecting by Hathor? Our God needs no protecting. Their gods need protecting by other gods. And again, once again, they're constantly in fighting, like little children in fight. Now let's look at this. So we see the polemic. God is taking on this group, this pantheon, these multiple false gods, to point out that they have no power. They have no power at all because he's going to take on that which images them or that by which they're embodied in, which is the livestock. 
and he's going to bring about death of the livestock, meaning there's a connection you would think right away. If he can kill the embodiment, he has power over the God behind the embodiment of these animals. So they are false gods. They have not the power that our God, Yahweh, has. There's also not only a polemic, but on another level, there is a decreation. This is the God, the only, the exclusive God who is creator, Yahweh, demonstrating again that I am the one who created, therefore I can reverse creation as a form of judgment on creation. I can make it move two steps back, five steps back, much like we see he did with the shadow at other times as a means of saying, I am the only God that can do this. So we see here, uh, let me read to you this, this statement from the commentaries. It's very short. It's only uh, one sentence, actually sort of one sentence. It's a little bit of a run, run on. We also see a, a creation reversal theme, in other words, decreation. Animals that were once given to humans for the purpose of being ruled by them, God created animals that, that mankind would rule over them in such a way that, he would, that we would steward God's physical earthly kingdom. Animals were going to be a part of that kingdom. We would use them and stewarding the whole earth. That was the original design. So here we have animals that were once given to humans for the purpose of being ruled by them are now taken from them. So instead of being given, you see the taken. And then the taken is being done by way of death to these animals. This is a step backwards in the creation narrative. Okay, so let's look at these. We have just a, a couple of uh, points this week that this should be a, a shorter sermon, but nonetheless, it's got some neat twists and turns, and we're just fascinated by the time we get done with it, not because of anything that I compiled, but rather because what God is doing through his rever- revealed word, and you get to see behind the scenes what the Hebrew is bringing out that sometimes we miss as a culture. So let's take a look at Yahweh's precise judgment on the kingdom of darkness. We're dealing with judgment and grace in this first point. We're going to, because the scripture deals first with judgment and a precise judgment at that, that's where we're going to start. So let's look again at Exodus 9, 1 through 6. Let me read. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. This is the second time he's used that title. The first time was a throwdown in verse, uh, excuse me, in the first uh, plague to say, it's me against you, Pharaoh. Now he's doing it as a throwdown again, a, a contrast. It's me against all the, the uh, livestock headed. It's me against all of you, the, the pantheon of you livestock headed uh, gods. See if you can take me on or not. That's the picture. This is a, again, this is an attack by God. God is initiating it because of their sinfulness. So we continue. Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. We're going to use the wooden Hebrew over the smooth out translation given in English. The wooden Hebrew would say it this way because he's, he's doing a ton of wordplay here today on two particular things going on, the word send out and the word thing. We're going to see that. So let's watch this. So in the, in the Hebrew, it says, uh, send out my people is what he says. So the idea of sending out the Israelites. And, the, and Pharaoh, he's telling Pharaoh, he's commanding Pharaoh, not giving him an option, send them out of Egypt. Free them. No longer allow them to be captive by you. No longer oppress them for your benefit by way of making them slave labor and more, so that your kingdom uh, is made more powerful. 
Send out my people that they may serve me. And that word serve we've talked about is included in that word. Although it is serve, it, it brings in the understanding of worshiping. Serving as worshiping. And we understand that as Christians. That, <clears throat> verse number two. For if you refuse to send them out and still hold them, behold, the hand of Yahweh. And this is kind of cool. First off, there's a biblical perspective. How does God use that, that phraseology, that title, that terminology in later aspects of the Bible? Well, first, we need to go back and understand that earlier, God used the understanding through Moses. God is inspiring the words that Moses uses. Moses earlier used the finger of God. And when he used the finger of God, it gave an idea of a personal identity as Yahweh and what he had the authority to do as the God who is self-existent. Even in his name, he's self-existent. Well, now he moves it from finger to hand. And the idea there is he's moving. In the Bible, we see that, that terminology used to reference either the hand of, of Yahweh or the arm of Yahweh, the right arm of Yahweh, would be his power or his might. So he's moving from uh, personal identity and authority more into power. And you're going to see him using his power to take on the power base of Pharaoh and his empire. That's what's going on. But there's a neat thing also. There's an idiom in, in Egyptian language. And the idiom, remember that an idiom is where you use a phrase or terminology or a title and if you use it woodenly as the words are, are written, you will misunderstand what is going on. You know, dad kicked the bucket. doesn't mean dad kicked the bucket. It means he died. We understand that means passed on. If we were to do it literally, we would misunderstand that. If in this one, the hand of, uh, of Pharaoh doesn't mean, you know, like you're, you're supposed to picture a hand, it actually means they, this would be used by Pharaoh or they would beg of Pharaoh in their, their desire, almost their prayer-like interaction as a people, to use the hand of Pharaoh to bring about a right and just judgment on their enemies. So by God using this, all, remember, this is first going to, the, to Pharaoh. You will know me. I am the God that uses the hand of Yahweh to bring about a right and just judgment on you, my enemy, my unrighteous enemy who oppresses my people. So you can see this is the kick in the sand in the face. God is wording it, letting it know that I'm coming at you, Pharaoh, and, and it's not going to be pretty. We're up in it. We're going after power, and I'm going to cut out the legs from underneath your empire. So we, con we continue on in, in, in our reading. In verse 3, Behold, the hand of Pharaoh will fall with a severe plague. And this is the first time we're starting to see a play on the word thing. Literally or woodenly is probably a better way of under, understanding it. In the Hebrew, it would say a very heavy thing. Now, it's right to be interpreted a very severe plague. But what's going on here is we see a precise, we see precision by God in what he's going to do in bringing judgment on the Egyptians. We're going to see precision on how he brings grace to his people. But he's going to use an imprecise word so that the people, the Hebrews listening to this, would have to, every time he hear this, 
the context has to define whether this thing is a good thing or a bad thing. It's only referred to in Hebrew as a thing. It's right for the English translators to call it a plague. It's a bad thing. But even then, there's a play. Is it really a bad thing to bring a plague on an unjust, oppressive people? So there's a lot going on. We're, we're, we're called, the Hebrews would have been thinking, hopefully, as they're listening to this, deepening, ooh, he means more than just what it seems like on the surface. So there's this deepening of trying to understand what is Yahweh doing? Is Yahweh doing evil or good? And so we continue on. And we have to make those judgment calls. Sometimes the English translation will, th- will make it for us. Sometimes it doesn't. Let's continue on. Um, let me back up so we get the full run at verse 3. Behold, the hand of Yahweh will fall, will fall with a very severe plague. A very, I'm going to use this word, debar. Debar or debar is the word. That means a thing. Um, in fact, in the NASB, they don't call it a plague. They're the only one of the five that I like to kind of look to see my interpretation against the other Bibles to see how they interpreted it. NASB actually interpreted it as a pestilence. A pestilence is the idea of a disease that goes out and and enters into the livestock. Whether or not it was a divine act of just death or it it was a divine act of using a means of death that came through pestilence, we don't know for sure. I think that's why more often than not, it's the favorite term is plague. No matter what, it's as God doing the killing of these animals. Is this killing good or bad? Let's continue on. Will fall, will fall with a very severe plague or thing upon your livestock. So a group of animals. Think of livestock. Those are the domesticated animals. Don't be thinking broader than that. Think domesticated animals. Think farm, farming, if that's your, your, your context to think in. Um, these are animals that, that would help the community do what the community needs to do to thrive. So upon your livestock, and note the precision, your livestock that are in the field. This is going to be important because if you don't catch this and you see the livestock being killed by hail in in, uh, the seventh plague, you're thinking, we got a problem here. I thought all the livestock were already killed. And God's word is not contradictory. We just need to be better at looking at it and making sure that we see the precision by which he is communicating to us. So we see here, upon your livestock that are in the field, and he's going to follow by a list, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. So you get a better idea on what exactly he's referring to using the term livestock. Let's continue on. So let's look at the, the big picture of what's, going to, what's happening. Pharaoh, if he fails at this point to release God's people, to send them out, He is going to receive a precision strike against the power structure of his empire. Let's let's look at what I'm getting at. This this is written by uh, uh, another commentator. I think he did such a good job. I'm just going to read what he says. God was explicit about the consequence of Pharaoh's actions. If he persisted in his tyranny, the Egyptians would suffer a terrible plague. Their livestock, in other words, the domesticated animals on which they depend for milk, food, clothing, labor, and transportation, 
would get sick and die. So you can see that this author believes it's a pestilence versus just a, a death, like the angel of death we see later on in, in plague number five. This is a, a, uh, he sees it more as a pestilence. John, John J. Davis explains, quote, such a plague would have, got, would have had grave economic consequences in the land of Egypt. Oxen were depended upon for heavy labor in agriculture. Camels, donkeys, and horses were used largely for transportation. This is the first plague aimed at destabilizing Egypt as a world power. You want to play big boy sports? You're going to play big boy wartime with God. And God's going, Yahweh's going right at him and says, here's, how's this? And he's going to take out some of the, his, the undergirding of his power. Not all of it. He's going to just continue to peck away at it. And he's demonstrating as he continues to peck away at it. He is the God so that even, not just the uh, Egyptians, not just the Israelites, that all the nations know who God is. He was able to take out, not by way of working through the Israelites, by his own means, through bringing plagues upon this people, he was able to take down the superpower. This is what they all need to know. Whatever your false gods are, all the nations of the world, they are nothing compared to Yahweh, the only one true God. So we're going to see in verse 5 that Yahweh will set a precise time, but we've already seen that he targets a precise animal group, the livestock, within a precise geographic location, those that are out in the field. They're not in the stables. Those are a different group. There's still livestock, but he's only targeting that which are out in the field at this point. So we have an understanding, a greater understanding of the precision. Now think about this. This is building. What God could pull off this kind of precision? We're going to see that Pharaoh even is going to question the precision of God's power, Yahweh's power. If, If Pharaoh is going to keep his oppressive hold on Yahweh's people... Yahweh will destroy the power structure of this kingdom of darkness one plague at a time. But remember, the word plague that he used there was actually the Hebrew word thing. One thing at a time Yahweh is going to use to bring about destruction of, that, of this nation. Let's see what that thing is, and let's see if we can identify if it's good or bad. So let's continue on. We need to have a right understanding of calamity. What, biblically speaking, is calamity? I, and I think the best ter, uh, uh, definition that I saw in my research was it is severe affliction. I think that's particularly helpful for our context today because what the, the uh, Egyptians are doing is they're severely afflicting the Israelites, God's people. And God is bringing this thing, this calamity in the form of plagues, this severe affliction on them. You want to afflict my people? I'm going to show you severe affliction, and I'm going to show you the result of my severe affliction. Yours keeps my people in bondage. Mine will destroy you as a nation, and you will release my people. So we start to see the greatness of our God. So look, I want to give you an idea of this biblically so you're not up here just going, well, Nick, that's a nice definition you looked up, but can you biblically bear out the understanding of calamity? Let me read to you from Job 21.17. Job says this, How often is it that the lamp of the, of the wicked is put out? 
that their calamity comes upon them. Their calamity comes upon them. You see, a little bit of a Job being very precise. They deserve it. They're bringing affliction, and now that God brings the affliction back on them. However severe it is to the person they're afflicting, God precisely brings it upon them. And he continues on in Job, that God distributes pains in his anger. We serve a just God. A just God who knows every injustice that is taking place on the earth today. Do not think that his anger is not aroused. Do not think that he misses any, any injustice. There will be a perfect time and a place. It may be in this temporal setting we call earth that we live on, or it may be ultimately for eternity. Either way, it will be brought about. It is God's pain that he brings about from his anger. You know, I, you know I've listened to men. I've, I've pondered the thought one time. I had a Christian uh, tell me one time, you know what hell is? Hell is separation from, from God. And I would agree with that, that that is one component of hell, that it's a separation. As long as we understand that, yes, it's, it is physical, it is geographically, they're, they're, uh, sin and all of its sinners are put away into this place called hell, and hell is sown in the, the lake of fire. It's relationally, they don't have, sinners will never have a, a saving, salvific relationship with Christ. But then what the person was trying to convey is that there is, that, that, is, that is hell, that there is no pain, that there is no angst, that there is no, the understanding of all the metaphors that talk about the, the continuing burning, the pictures of fire. This suggests, in this verse right here, the pains of calamity. If God brings about pains of calamity from an earthly, physical standpoint, how much more for the wicked who for their whole lives have shaked their fists at God and said, I'm God, and you're not. I will not honor you. I will not worship you. You are evil. You do not do what I want to do. So I, I want to make sure you don't fall into the trap of some churches teaching that hell is just this separation from God. It's more than that. It's the pains that we receive, justly receive. Now, when I say we, I should probably make, clarify that. Anyone who has not repented of their sin and professed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior justly receives in trying to be the God, the Pharaoh over the God who is self-existent. So let's, let's continue on with our study in, in the Bible. Proverbs 22.8 says this, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. God ensures that. Now again, we've got to be careful. Is that in this life will we see it or in the next? We know it's not always in this life. There are wicked men that never paid on this life, but we can know that they will pay eternally in, in eternal life. And then we continue on in Proverbs 28.14. Blessed is the one who fears Yahweh always. But whoever, and interesting, you can see the, the one writing this particular proverb reflecting back to our story today, to this plague account in Exodus. Listen to this. I'm going to read it again. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears Yahweh always, but whoever hardens his heart. This is plague number five. Every time we've seen the hardening of the heart, it's been Pharaoh doing the hardening. It's never once been God. We're going to see a shift in plague number six, but this has always been Pharaoh hardening his heart. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. 
The reason I want to make sure we grasp this, the reason I think God is making sure that we grasp this, this play on this word thing today, is so that we get an understanding that when, when God says, vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord, we need to be a people that are not looking to be those vigilantes that will bring about a rightness and justice. We'll take justice into our own hands. No, God is the one who is justly over all of the government bodies that stand on the face of the earth today. We need to recognize them. God will bring punishment to those people that are unjustly governing. It is not ours to be these vigilantes, to take justice into our hands. And we can can know when you have been done wrong and that cuts deep, what is it in your life that you know this is an injustice and I just can't get over it? You need to know that whatever or whoever did this will receive just punishment if they never accept the saving work of Jesus Christ. And if God chooses to bring about salvation in their lives, we must be prepared to say, thanks be to God, because I was once deserving of God's justice. I was once one who shook my fist and said, I am God, you are not. So we need to understand, and hopefully that helps us realize, when, when you have that injustice done to you, you can know, you can, you can say in your prayers, in, in uh, uh, the Psalms, the psalmist does it often, letting us know that God is the God of justice and he will take care of it. And it, it helps us go, okay, God, I give this over to you because you will perfectly mete out the justice. I could never perfectly mete it out. But there, this will not go unpunished in, in the sense that we talked about the unbeliever. So let's, let's continue on as we understand this. Now, is calamity a thing of evil? Calamity brings destruction. Is calamity evil? Because it's anything that is, quote, bad? I mean, we're talking about animals dying. Can't, doesn't that always have to be bad? Is there intrinsic badness in this act? Because we think that uh, we as human beings say that death means it always has to be something evil, something bad, or is this calamity? Is this God taking something that is considered bad, punishment, we'll use this word, might help us, to bring about justice on a situation? God uses calamity to bring justice into the lives of those people that perpetrate evil. And you start to think, oh, wow, that hurts my head. I've I got to think this through a little bit. I've got to be more than one-dimensional in my understanding of who God is and what his acts are. I have to be careful to take what I think is the right definition of bad or good or evil and apply it to God and take too broad of a stroke. We need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to view God's judgment through a simplistic, one-dimensional understanding of judgment or of evil or of calamity. Choose your words. Work through the thinking of this. God is bringing about precise judgment against evil. Do you realize he's doing it in every age? Sometimes we read the Bible and we think, well, he did it in Egypt. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He did it on Babylon in, in the times of, of the prophets. 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In, in, in Revelations, we're going to see it again against all of Babylon, and then we'll say, and there's, there's those three anchors, and we see that, and we're just supposed to hope in between there. And, and it's right to anchor our hope in what God has promised, but God is showing us, God, if you, if you look at Revelation and the revolutions, and I'm talking about revolving cycle, cycles of judgment through the bowls, through the trumpets, you see a reoccurring theme that God ultimately judges evil, even temporally in every generation here on earth. We may not see it. We may not experience it. But we have a God that has not walked away from dealing with evil here on this earth. So you and I can have hope that the evil perpetrated on us, our loved ones, people in other nations, I'm trying to think, help you think globally about what's going on as far as invasions by more powerful evil nations invading and killing people. I'm not talking about the politics behind it. I'm talking about simply bringing about death of human beings by way of invasion, of imposing their will on somebody. In those situations, you can know, I don't know what he will do in this situation or that situation, but in every generation, our God is an active God who is bringing about calamity to bring destruction, to bring judgment on the people who are imposing that. And we can have hope in our lives as we see this. This is our generation in some sense. We are the people of, that, that this, this is occurring, that the, what is happening in the world, we own, so to speak. And we can have hope and we need to pray that God would bring justice. It is a right thing to pray for, that God would bring judgment and stop the evil. He would bring calamity and stop the evil. He would allow the evil to be overcome by the calamity that it created. So let's continue on. Let's look at Yahweh's precise grace upon the citizens of his kingdom. I'm in verse 4. So we saw precise judgment. Now look at the precise grace. But Yahweh will make a distinction. We've already seen this world before. It is pala. It means treat excellently. So Yahweh will make a distinction in which he treats excellently between the livestock of Israel. They're the ones that are going to be receiving this excellent treatment and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing, and it's interesting, in the, in the Hebrew, it's no thing. The Hebrew doesn't have the word nothing. We take no thing and we squish it together in English and it be- becomes nothing. That's how we pronounce it. But it's neat that he's doing the wordplay. It's thing again. Where is no thing? So, so that no thing, what is the thing here? No livestock. That's the thing in the picture. No thing of, uh, that is a live, that is a living creature, i.e. livestock particularly, of all the things that belong to is, of, of Israel shall die. God is saying, I'll make sure that this thing in your land, these livestock, will not perish. Egypt, you will know it. All the animals, all the livestock that are out in the fields will die. Israel will not. And he's telling this, remember, he's telling this to Pharaoh. So we have Pharaoh. He's going to get curious here. Let's continue on. And Yahweh set a time saying, tomorrow. Now think about how, how many events have to take place if you think that this is anthrax. You think that this is, a, you're a naturalist. You think that, you know, this is just history, pulled out of history, and there must have been anthrax or some epidemic that just kind of worked its way through, through Egypt at that time. And look, 
These silly Christians created a book in which they took credit. For, they gave their God credit for this. And this is nothing else other than a random epidemic. That in itself even sounds weird. A random epidemic that came through. No, no, no. He says it's going to happen tomorrow, and it happens. And if it's anthrax, they were killed immediately. Let's take a look at this. As far as we see the death occurring, because we're going to see that Pharaoh goes to check it out. And Yahweh set a, set, set a time saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, Yahweh will do this, this thing. There's our word, devar. He can't, he's using this wordplay all the way through here in the land. And the next day, Yahweh did this thing, devar. And then it, when it comes to all, remember, a hermeneutic, an interpretation tool, we have to remember is, anytime you see the word all, has God qualified all before he uses the word all? And he has. He qualified it by saying, livestock out in the field. So when we get to all, we don't say, when someone says, well, you're, you Christians have got it all confused. How could there be any, any, any animals for uh, uh, the seventh plague of hail if he were all destroyed? Well, he qualified what all would include. So it would be like, it would sound like this to us <clears throat> in, in reading verse 6. And the next day, Yahweh did this thing. All sorts of the livestock of the Egyptians, and you might even throw in, that were in the field, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And we see the precision. Now, I want to say something else. If this is pestilence, if this is disease, how, humanly speaking, or divinely speaking, is it that it, it follows along a geographic area and it doesn't hit the land of Goshen? where all of the Israelites are, which is in very close proximity, which would have easily carried that particular epidemic into that. Into that. Um, you just can't have it. It has to be something that is divinely occurring. So what's going on here as we deal with the precise grace? We see the, the lack of judgment upon the Israelites. In other words, we see not judgment. We see grace. And we know that this is a, a theme. This is a salvation theme that goes, it weaves itself all the way through the Bible. This salvation theme, we're seeing it here very clearly. We understand in our own lives that we do not receive the thing, staying with Moses' thing, the theme, which is the thing, which is judgment that we deserve. Just like the Israelites, in a physical sense, did not receive the thing that they deserved, we, we deserve punishment. We are sinners, everyone in this room. There's no one. I hope that no one that comes into this room and hears the preaching or engages us thinks, oh, you, you Christians think you are self-righteous. Oh, no. We're the first to say we are the, the foremost of sinners. We need God's salvation. We just happen to know it. God has opened us to realize, our minds to realize we need a righteousness outside of ourselves. Left to ourselves, we deserve judgment. We don't get that thing. In fact, what's really a neat twist again here, we don't get that thing, but Jesus Christ takes on that thing. He takes on our judgment so that he now dies in our place we have his righteousness imputed. That's a big fancy word that says that just based, I'll use a, another metaphor to help us. We take on the robes of his righteousness. We get them placed on ourselves by what the thing he did, the judgment he received. And we're just blown away by that. That's what leads us to authentic worship. If you're here today out of duty, 
that's okay. If I were to say to my wife, I love you out of duty, how impressed do you think she would be with that statement? <laughs> I mean, it's true. I made a covenant with, between God a, and her, but it's really not an act of love. We are here. We are motivated, motivated by authentic love because we recognize that Christ took on that thing for us. And we want to come. We want to worship with our people, the people who also recognize that, that we can worship as not just one voice, but a multitude of voices singing forth or reading forth uh, from the, 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 uh, the creeds or the catechisms that we do. We're letting God know we trust in you. We are thankful. When we raise our voices in prayer or in uh, song, we are saying with authentic hearts, you are God and we are not. And we're so glad you are because we're terrible gods. We are in desperate need of your saving. Well, let's take a look at, well, actually, I want to ask a question. It's almost, we're almost done here. Let's ponder a second. Each one of you, I'm not going to give you my story. I want you to think of your story. Think of the precise nature of grace in your lives. When did God transform your hearts that you now understood that it's not by works, it's not by what you do, you're not going to get graded when you get to heaven and God's going to say, there is more good that you did in your life than there is bad, come on in. When, when was it that you understood that it's only by Jesus' righteous act of dying for us that we are saved? What was the circumstances that were going on in your life? Think of all the moving parts. Just like the, the, the plague came about tomorrow, the day that your heart was transformed was precisely determined by your Savior before the beginning of time. You would live as a creature in this time frame. God would use these circumstances to bring about your salvation. Stand in awe based on your own testimony of who God is. Some of us were cut off guard. Others of us were blessed to grow up in a wonderful, godly family. How about him bringing about that, that godly family? Really? Think of the odds of having two parents that are, that are saved. What's the odds of that in a world broken by sin? Your God, my God, is a gracious God of precise grace using timing, circumstance, and people because the grace that comes from the word of God is a spoken or at least a read grace. God designs to use people to advance his gospel. Think of the people that told you about salvation. Maybe the first time you thought, what a nut. Or you thought, this guy's weird, or this guy's a Bible thumper, or this gal is, is just way off the deep end. All she ever talks about is Jesus. And then all of a sudden, God transformed your heart. And now you're going, wait a second. This sounds different to me. Is this the same thing that person was telling me before? This is the precise nature of our God as it relates to the grace he's demonstrated in our own hearts. But let's end with this, a precisely self-destructive response. Here we see Pharaoh in verse 7. And Pharaoh sent. There's our word for, for uh, that it, it's shalach. It means to, you, 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 if you read it in your Bible, let my people go, that was what I was saying, send out. It's the same verse, excuse me, it's the same verb. Now the English translator translate it as sent. The, and Pharaoh sent, who did he send? It doesn't say. We can just classify them as investigators. 
He sent his team of investigators. And what's he going to go take a look at, these investigators? And they're going, obviously, into the land of Goshen to assess the damage done to the Israelite livestock. And look, i got a bunch of dead livestock in my open fields. What do they have? You go tell me what they've got. And so he sends them, and behold, Moses, whenever he uses that word, he's slowing things down. He wants us to go, whoa, there's something big just happened here. So, and behold, and, and it's interesting, it doesn't come through in the English. It is clearly in the Hebrew. It says, not even one. You could add the word even in there. It's in the Hebrew. It's a behold moment. Not even one. Talk about precise. Not one livestock is dead. This is not earthly possible. This is the the hand of a divine, powerful, precise God. Not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. He did not send the people out. Let's leave with this understanding. It's neat to look at this more closely as far as, look, he's... Pharaoh's heart is still being hardened by Pharaoh. Isn't it interesting? God brings calamity from outside on the exterior to judge Pharaoh. And Pharaoh doesn't understand the precision of God. He challenges it. He sends investigators into the land to see how precise this God is. Is is he doing stuff? whereby is he bringing about a calamity where he even brings it on his own people? If that's the case, surely I have an ability against this God because he's not going to get rid of his own people. So this guy, this God has a limitation. And these investigators come back and tell him, you know, only only ours were killed. None of theirs were killed. This is a precise God which can do exactly what he says to a precise group of people, his enemy. But this is also in this understanding God is working from the inside. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart is the trajectory of evil itself. Evil wants to destroy every human being on the face of this earth that has ever lived. That's its objective. He thinks he's God. He thinks he can deal with God from the outside and the calamity he brings. He doesn't even know that corruption is occurring in his own heart. He's the one bringing the internal calamity, and he's doing it willfully. What a gracious God we have. What a precise God we have. We're reminded, and I'll end with this, the takeaway. Be encouraged that Yahweh carries out precise judgment against evil while also bestowing precise grace upon his people. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, help us to, to mull over this, to ponder these truths, to stand in awe of you as we understand the precision of your hand, as we understand that you are a God who is ever-present with us in the person of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for the preciseness by which you interact with us. It's a merciful, a gracious preciseness, and we are forever indebted to you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.